If you have your Bibles with you, open them up to the book of Philippians. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can uh, use the Bible in front of you in the pew. will be on page 1040. Um, if anybody has any questions as we get through the text today, feel free to text them to the Q&R number and we will take a look at them when we are done. Um, we're going to get a little technical this morning, so that, that might spark some, some good questions. So, um, um, yeah, we'll see what happens. We uh, started a couple weeks ago a, a sermon for the new year, a series for the new year talking about just kind of the mission and the vision and the values of Revelation Church. Who are we? Why do we exist? What's the point of all this? And initially we said that the, the big idea is that God is not hidden. We serve a God that makes himself known to people. All people in the world wander around in darkness and God is always pursuing. He's always knocking on the door of their heart. And then last week, we said that one of the things that's true about us, if you're a Christian here this morning, one of the things that's true about you is that you've been adopted by the Father. Before the foundation of the world, God chose you to be his child. We talked about adoption and, and how, how powerful that is. Today, we're going to take a look at another thing that as Christians is true about us, and that's the second bullet on this sign, is that we are loyal to the Son, we are loyal to the Son. And as a church, we, we believe what's called the gospel or the, the good news about Jesus. And, and the gospel has, has three basic movements. And, and if you are into alliterations, you can memorize them like this. The first movement is revelation. The second one is response. And the third one is results. The gospel is a revelation because there is something that happens that we find out about. Then there's a gospel response because there's something that we are called to do in response to that revelation. And then there are results, there are things that happen to us because of that response. And last week in talking about adoption, we talked about revelation. We said, there are things that are true about you because God has done them. God has accomplished your salvation. But after that, there are things that we are called to do. God invites us into a, a covenant to make us part of his community of people. And he says, because I have saved you, this is how you are to respond. And today we're going to take a look at some of that response. As we respond, one of the ways we respond is we are loyal to the Son. So this word loyal, if, if you, it's not a word that we use a lot, but I've chosen it because it's a way that we can translate the word faith. We use the word faith a lot. That's a good church word. Faith is a, is a word that we, we throw around both inside this place and outside in the world, whether you're talking about um, George Michael or Oprah or, or anybody, they're using the word faith. Uh, the dictionary says that faith is possibly complete trust or confidence in someone or something. I have faith that it will all work out in the end. This Congress has really restored my faith in government. Nobody's ever said that, but that's a possible usage of that word. It could be also strong belief in God or in the doctrines of a religion based on spiritual apprehension rather than proof. We might say this is a faith-based initiative. That just means that churches or religious organizations are involved. Or we will say his, her faith is very important to her life. Faith is, is a bucket that she keeps religious ideas and beliefs in that matter a lot to her. Or maybe he walked away from his faith there's a, there's a set of ideas that this person has stopped believing. And, and so we, we use the word faith like that all the time. And we look back in history and we see it the same way. Voltaire writes, faith consists in believing when it is beyond the power of reason to believe. Friedrich Nietzsche says a casual stroll through the lunatic asylum shows that faith does not prove anything. 
In those dictionary definitions and in those two quotes, we see that faith is an internal mental belief in something that you cannot prove. This is how we talk about faith in the culture. This is how we typically understand the word faith when we read it in our Bibles. The problem with this is it's almost entirely wrong. New Testament scholar Nijek Gupta writes, when Paul is talking about faith, he's not talking about mental assent to doctrine. He's talking about something deeply relational and deeply transformative. Classicist scholar Teresa Morgan says, faith is first and foremost neither a body of beliefs nor a function of the heart or mind, but a relationship which creates community. In the Greek language that the New Testament was written in, the word for faith is the word pistis. Uh, The word pistis is a word that has a spectrum of meanings, and it can mean everything from believe, like we've been talking about, to trust, to allegiance, to loyalty. And sometimes it means believe. There are definitely places in the scripture that that would be the best way to translate it, but it does not primarily mean Believe, And I want to give you a couple examples with some English words. Faith is not a word with multiple meanings like the word pen. If I say the word pen, it could be a writing instrument or it could be a, a, a holding area for animals, right? And those two things are completely different, a word with two completely different meanings. Faith isn't like that. Faith is more like the word good. We might say, we had a good time yesterday, That means we we had an enjoyable time. Or you could say, bring me a good banana. That means a, a ripe banana or a suitable banana. That ticket is good for travel on any flight. That means it's valid. It's a good 10 miles to the next gas station. That means complete or whole. But that fourth one, and and I think, unless maybe you live in the south. You don't hear that a lot. Most of the time, good meaning complete isn't used in our everyday language. But what if we understood the word good every time we heard it to mean complete? We had a good time yesterday and you, you read that or, and you hear that and you go, you had a complete time yesterday? See, that would not be the correct meaning of the word. So when we get to the word faith in scripture, the word pistis, it has this range of meanings that goes from believe all the way to allegiance and loyalty. How are we supposed to understand it? Well, sometimes our Bibles don't understand it as faith. They understand it as faithfulness. In Romans 3, we read, what then? If some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? The word for God's faithfulness, it's the same word. It's pistis. That's hundreds and hundreds of times translated faith, but we don't think of God as having faith. So we, the translators just make it faithfulness instead. In Galatians 5, we read, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Faithfulness, it's not a different word. It's the same word as faith. But since the fruit of the spirit is something that is worked out outwardly from us, we think, well, that's, that's not how faith works. So we translate it faithfulness. But it's the same word. What's the motto of the U.S. Marine Corps? Semper Fi, Semper fi right? Yeah. Fi is not the full word. What's the full word? Fidelis. Fidelis is a Latin word, and it's the Latin version of this Greek word pistis. Semper Fi means always faithful. That doesn't mean that the Marine Corps just thinks really deeply about the military or thinks just really strongly about the U.S. government. It means they're going to show up when they're called for. This word pistis, this word faith, oftentimes means loyalty, allegiance, Nijay Gupta again says, it's interesting and instructive to note that of the more than a thousand appearances of pistis in the Greek literature of antiquity, 
the vast majority of these are in political or conflict-oriented histories, and the obvious connotations involve allegiance or pledges of loyalty. What he's saying is throughout the ancient world, when people were using the word faith, they didn't believe, I have these ideas in my head that I believe to be true. They believed, I am loyal to this person or this organization, and I will demonstrate that loyalty with my life. So maybe, maybe this makes you feel a little uncomfortable because now it sounds like faith is not just something that we have, but it's something that we do. And we're, we've been taught our entire lives that we are saved by grace through faith. It is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast. And that's true. But if faith means loyalty or allegiance... Does that mean that in order to have faith, I have to do something? Does this mean this is what was called works righteousness? And in order to answer that question, we need to understand two things. The first one is that pistis is actually something that you do. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 23. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint and dill and cumin, and yet you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice. Justice is something that you do. Mercy, mercy is something that you do. And pistis, translated in our Bibles as faithfulness because it's something that you do. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. So faith in the Bible isn't just something that we keep straight in our heads. It's an active outworking of how we live our lives. But it's also true that pistis, faith, is not a work that saves us. Paul makes this really clear in Romans. Romans 3 says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe, since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, on the contrary, by the law of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And again, in Galatians 2, he says something similar. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. So there's this reality that faith over and over and over and over again in the ancient world means loyalty to someone that has worked out actively in one's life. And yet Paul stands up and he says, but even that, that loyalty, that trust that we place in Christ, that's not a work that saves us because our salvation is completely 100% built on the work of Jesus. That Jesus has, remember, God is not hidden. God is pursuing people. He is the first one that takes the first step and he comes after sinners and pays for sin on the cross and raises from the dead and offers salvation to people. And so Paul says, no, there's no work. There's no boasting in that. You're just called to trust in Christ. So maybe some of you are thinking about things like Calvinism and Arminianism. When we talk about the way that you're saved, that kind of stuff comes up. And this really isn't a problem, no matter where you land on this spectrum, because either that loyalty, that faith, that believing loyalty to God that you experience, either that comes to you as a gift from God, if you're a Calvinist, or if you're not a Calvinist, God invites you by his grace as a gift to be a member of his family, and then you respond with loyalty to Christ. And this idea that faith is about loyalty is pretty self-evident. Mike Heiser says it this way, there are no worshipers of Baal in Yahweh's house. 
right? You, you can't put your trust or give your allegiance to another God or to no God at all and be saved. For those of us that maybe prayed a prayer at camp once and then checked that salvation box and haven't thought anything about Jesus for the last 30 years, that is not a relationship with the Lord. That is not faith. Just to be clear, the gospel is 100% dependent on the work of Christ. We do nothing to contribute to or earn our salvation. But at the same time, we are called to continued believing loyalty to our Savior King. So what does that look like? How is that expressed? Well, this gets us into our text this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 Just one thing, Paul says, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, you are citizens of heaven. Your allegiance is to the kingdom of God. Citizens are loyal to the place that they are citizens of. We don't just believe things about our nation as citizens of the United States. We act in a way that supports and demonstrates that belief. For a while, we were looking at building a steel building in our backyard, and I was on every single steel building website there is. And they all have a little sticker on them that says, made with U.S. steel. Why do they say that? Because they're, they have loyalty in the economy of the United States. They're they're not just believing something about U.S. steel. They're acting out their belief, their loyalty to the U.S. economy and the U.S. um, culture by saying, this is what we do to show who we are. On the other hand, if, if we read a news report about a U.S. citizen that's been sneaking military secrets to China, that's actually like a capital crime. It's right. It's called treason. You can, you can be executed for that. That's an action that shows that you are not loyal to your country. Loyalty is expressed not just in belief, but in action. And as Christians, our ultimate loyalty is to the kingdom of Christ. Now, this is a problem for the Philippians. Because Philippi is a city that was founded uh, as a Roman colony for ex-military officials. When you served in the army, you were rewarded by by being given land in Philippi. And this whole city, the the last thing I read this week said about 40% of the people in this city were ex-military. And the culture in Philippi is radically committed to loyalty to Rome and to Caesar. And so the Christians come along, Paul comes to Philippi in Acts 16 and preaches the gospel and a bunch of people get saved and a church is founded. And the Christians come along and they say, actually, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is. And the Christians become this radically political fringe group in one of the most patriotic cities in the empire. And so Paul goes on in Philippians 1, he says, then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. Notice the language, standing firm, contending, not being frightened of your opponents. This is all fighting words, right? This is all military language. The Philippians are being harassed and even persecuted because they are claiming a higher loyalty than Caesar and Rome. And they will not pledge allegiance to Caesar throughout the Roman Throughout the Roman Empire, over the first several hundred years of the church, one thing that you did to show that you are a faithful citizen is once a year you were called to go to the temple of Caesar and burn incense and say, I pledge my allegiance to Caesar. And it was just a thing. Nobody really cared. It was just, you just, it's just what you did, like renewing the tabs on your uh, car license plate. It's, you just had to go down to the office and burn the incense and get it over with and get a mark on your certificate. And the Christians wouldn't do it. 
The Christians refused to swear allegiance to Caesar. And they were killed for it. There's these fascinating stories of Christians being brought before the rulers of Rome and, 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 the, and these magistrates saying like, look, nobody cares. You can worship whatever God you want. We don't want to give you any trouble. Just sign the paper. Everything's fine. It's, not, it's meaningless. It doesn't, it just doesn't matter. Just do it. And they wouldn't do it. And it's almost these, these, these rulers almost like shook their heads and, and, and beat them against their desks because they did not want to kill these perfectly good citizens who were sweet and kind and cared for the poor and loved one another. And yet they had to, and they sent them to the arenas to be murdered because they wouldn't sign the dumb little piece of paper that says, I swear my allegiance to Caesar. Moving on in verse 29, Paul says, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe, there's that faith word, but also to suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. Paul is in prison writing this letter. The Philippians' loyalty to Jesus is expressed by their suffering for Jesus. And that suffering looks like what Paul went through when he was there. In Acts 16, we read that Paul was, was stripped of his clothes, he was beaten, and he was arrested for promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. Have you ever noticed that? That's, Paul very often got in trouble because he was the wrong kind of political. New Testament scholar Matthew Bates says, in the ancient world, you display your loyalty. What's at the forefront of that idea is not just mental, but as is bodily. The Christians in Philippi aren't just quietly believing things to be true about Jesus. They are demonstrating their loyalty to him in ways that their non-Christian neighbors can see and are offended by. So what does that look like? Well, we move to chapter two, where Paul encourages the Philippians to work out what their loyalty to Jesus looks like. He says, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship with the spirit, any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Paul in chapter one says, good job standing up for your faith, your loyalty to Christ. And then he explains what that looks like. Loyalty to Christ looks like giving priority to other people over yourself. And this, this, is, a th this is a reality of the Christian life that goes explicitly against everything that we're told in our culture, right? Like I get emails all the time from random places that want to give me advice about my marriage and, and my work and my leisure. And every single message is make sure you're prioritizing yourself. Make sure that you are the most important person in this relationship. The, the secret to a happy marriage is to make sure you get what you want. If you're in a bad work relationship, you need to make sure to stand up for your rights. Don't let other people push you around. And there's, there's like a kernel. This is what makes this idea so insidious. There's like a kernel of truth to that, right? It's kind of the whole um, make sure you put your own oxygen mask on before you help others thing. Like at some point, self-care is a thing that we need to be aware of. If, if you run yourself to death, you're no good to anyone. But the overwhelming message of our culture is an unhealthy self-centeredness. And if we're people that are others-focused, that's a massive demonstration of our loyalty 
to Christ. So, but on the other side of that, does that just mean that we let people roll over us? Maybe you're in a relationship where you're being mistreated, taken advantage of, or even abused, especially by someone who also claims to be loyal to Christ. And if that's the case, you need to ask the question, is it in the other person's best interest for me to allow them to mistreat me? Because that's what the text says, right? Don't just look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. And sometimes the best thing that you can do for someone that is mistreating you is to call them out on it, is to remove yourself from that situation. Maybe call the cops if that's the extent of the abuse that's being committed against you. Are there times when we are call, uh, called to allow ourselves to be mistreated for the sake of our loyalty to Christ? Absolutely. Are there circumstances where it would be unlove, unloving to continue to let someone harm us? Absolutely. How do we know the difference? If we go up a couple verses... Paul says this, if, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. All of that language tells us that these Philippians are a family. They are united together in community. They are living their lives among one another. And if you find yourself in a situation where you're going like, I don't know what to do. Is the right thing to do to submit myself to being mistreated for the glory of Christ? Or is the right thing for me to do to stand up for myself because what's best for the other person is to stop harming me? If you're in a family of Jesus people, you have a whole bunch of spirit-filled men and women to work that out with, to get counsel from. And that's why it's so important that we are not Christians all by ourselves. Because when the time comes to make a hard decision, what are we supposed to do? What's the best thing to do? What's the best way to go? Paul just assumes that the Philippians are making these decisions in the context of their community. Nijay Gupta again says, the good news is, of course, all about the supreme lordship of Christ. And at that time in ancient Rome, being a good citizen meant loyalty to the sovereign Lord. For Paul, gospel citizens seek to meet the standards of their Lord, Jesus Christ. So what is in Paul's mind, the standard of our Lord. Well, we keep reading in verse five, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is called, is, is, is called a Christ hymn. It's one of several in the New Testament. In your Bibles, it's probably like um, indented some and on a lot of little different lines. Uh, and scholars fight about whether Paul wrote this poem or whether he just inserted it. It was an earlier poem that all of the Christians knew and memorized, and he used it here. Because we forget sometimes we have our Bibles, right? The early Christians, they didn't. They had the Old Testament, and anything they knew about Jesus was taught to them orally and in these little poems that they memorized. And this is one of those poems, possibly, and it says that Jesus exists as God from before time began, perfect and powerful in every way. And he doesn't see his power and his privilege as something he needs to exploit for his own benefit, but he becomes a servant. He takes on a human nature, exists as a human being, 
And not just a normal servant, he comes and submits himself to death, a criminal's death on the cross. And, and, and we know why he does this. He does this not for his own benefit, but for our benefit. He lays down his rights and his privileges for us. And at the, after this happens, he is highly exalted. He's brought back to the position of power and exaltation. And Paul says that every name on heaven and on earth will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In a community where in order to get along, you had to say Caesar is Lord, Paul writes to these people and says, no, no, no. All these people, one day they're going to recognize that Jesus is Lord. Jesus willingly gives up his honor and privilege for the good of others. Here's an example of this in John 18. John writes, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews gather and I haven't spoken anything in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officials standing by slapped Jesus saying, is this the way you answer the high priest? If I have spoken wrongly, Jesus answered him, give evidence about the wrong. But if rightly, why do you hit me? Jesus is standing before the Supreme Court of Israel in one of his trials before his crucifixion, and the high priest is questioning him, this man who has been appointed uh, through some shenanigans by Rome to oversee the religious life of the people of Israel. And Jesus, the eternal son of God, the king of kings, Lord of lords, the word who became flesh, the one who holds creation together by the word of his power is standing in front of this puppet priest being interrogated. And not even the priest, but a guard doesn't like the way he's answering and he slaps him across the face. And in that moment, Jesus has every right to just destroy the room. But he doesn't. He sets that privilege, he sets that honor aside, and he lets them abuse him. And why does he do this? He does it for us. He walks through humili humiliation and suffering and death in order to save us from sin and death. And through his cross, Jesus becomes enthroned as the king, the ruler over the kingdom of which we are citizens. And Paul says in Philippians that one day everyone will bow down to King Jesus. One day everyone will recognize who is the true ruler of the universe. But Christian, you and I today, we are willingly doing that right now. And Paul says the way we are demonstrating that is by giving ourselves away in service to others. So as we wrap up, what are some implications of this idea of being loyal to Jesus? Well, first of all, a reminder of what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that our loyalty is what makes us Christians or keeps us Christians. But I am saying that Christians are loyal to Christ. Mike Heiser again says, people who really understand the gospel are going to try to imitate Christ because they want to honor him. We don't do works so that we can add our own merits to the gospel. What you do isn't going to change God's disposition toward you in any way because your salvation from the get-go was not based on you earning God's favor in any way. It's never based on how well you perform. Remember last week, we talked about adoption. God adopted you knowing all of the problems in your life, and he loves you anyway. You are his child. You didn't do anything 
to get into the kingdom of God and you can't do anything to stay in the kingdom of God and you can't do anything to get kicked out of the kingdom of God. You are secure in the kingdom. Loyalty is not about getting everything right because we're all constantly stumbling along. We all fail up to live up to Jesus' example all the time. But it is about remaining faithful to the one you are pledged to. Reminds me of, of the Fellowship of the Ring in uh, The Lord of the Rings. And, and there's this, this scene where everybody's um, in Rivendell all of the different factions, the humans and the elves and the dwarves. And, and Frodo is <clears throat> Frodo's going to Mount Doom with the ring. And what does everybody say? They, you know, Gimli says, ah, oh, you have my axe. And, and Legolas says, you have my bow. And Aragorn says, you have my sword. And, and so they're pledging an oath of loyalty to Frodo and his mission with the ring. For those of you that know the story, do any of them succeed? No. At various points in the story, they all, for various reasons, they're not with Frodo at the end. It's, it's him and Sam at the end. Does that mean they were unfaithful? Were they disloyal to Frodo? No. See, our loyalty, it starts in our heart and it moves out into our actions and our loyalty isn't based on our performance. It's based on Jesus. The second implication is that sometimes loyalty to Christ looks foolish. I was, I was reading today in Acts 16 where Paul comes to Philippi. And this is, this, is a, this is a fun little extra piece of homework for those of you that want it. If you, if you take Philippians 2 and Acts 16 and put them right next to each other and, and look at how Jesus goes from glory to suffering and back to glory and how Paul gets treated in Philippi, it's really interesting. Paul comes to Philippi and causes a riot and uh, he gets stripped naked and beaten and thrown in jail. And uh, he spends the night in jail with Silas and there's this thing they're singing and the, the, the jailer, there's an earthquake and they're freed and the jailer thinks that all the prisoners have escaped, but they haven't. And, and he leads the jailer to Christ and his whole family. And, and then the next day, the, the magistrates of Philippi say, oh, you can go. And Paul goes, oh, oh you know, you illegally arrested Roman citizens. Did you know that? And the, the magistrates are freaked out because it's, it's illegal to, without charges, you know, strip someone naked and beat them and throw them in jail if they're a Roman citizen. And so then Paul says, no, actually, I need you to come down to the jail and release us yourself and bear the humiliation of your mistake. And the weird thing is like, why didn't Paul lead with that? Why didn't Paul go, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't arrest me. You can't beat me. I don't know. I would have. I don't want to get beat. I don't want to go to jail. If I have the power and the privilege and the authority to claim my citizenship and prevent my own suffering, why would I not do that? But Paul... Paul didn't like forget, oh yeah, I'm a Roman citizen. I should have had my wallet with me. Like he just doesn't use his authority. He doesn't use his privilege. He sets it aside and he allows people to mistreat him. And the process of that experience leads to the salvation of a whole family. And then the next day, he prays around the government officials in humiliation by exercising his authority and his privilege once again. And the only thing that I can think is later in this letter, in chapter 3, Paul says this. He says in 3.10, my goal is to know him, know Jesus, 
and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his, his death, assuming I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Is it possible that Paul entered into a situation and said, you know what, I could assert my privilege and my authority and my power and save myself from suffering and abuse, but I'm just going to choose not to because that's what Jesus did. I'm going to see what Jesus does in the midst of that. Doesn't that seem crazy? Would any of us do that? And that's what Paul did. Sometimes our loyalty to Christ is going to look foolish. And the last thing I want to mention before we close is, and I want to be real careful here, we are called to believe the gospel. There is, there is something that we, there are, there are truths about God that we are meant to affirm. And we are called to trust and be loyal to Christ. Many people right now are going through what's being called deconstruction. You're familiar with that term? Run into it. And sometimes, I, I think, sometimes people just, just want an excuse for not following Jesus, and, and that's fine. But for others, it's, it's a real serious reflection around the way that they've been brought up. Maybe they, maybe they are seeing some inconsistencies with the faith of their parents, the faith of the church they uh, grew up in, and, and, and the scriptures. Maybe they're just confused about some pretty rigid doctrinal lines that they, uh, they don't see as rigid anymore. And so there's, there's a lot of soul searching there's a lot of study. There's a lot of reading. And maybe, maybe some of you are kind of going through that process in, in different ways. And maybe, maybe for you, if, if that's you, you're, you're finding yourself where like, man, I just, I love Jesus. But everything else, gosh, I don't know. I'm just not sure. We have a golden doodle named Eustace. He's almost a year old. And he is the most loyal dog. He, he loves us so much. It just like shoots out of his eyes. And whenever we leave... Um, we have to do something with a dog. This, see, not having a dog is so great. Having a dog is also great, but for different reasons. But we have to go, okay, what are we doing with the dog? And we've, we've put him in a little pen inside, and he freaks out so badly that he's like broken the pen open. Sometimes he doesn't break the pen open, but he has a panic attack, and he soils himself, and then we have like a massive dog mess when we get home. Because as soon as we get home, he's so happy to see us and he runs around the house spreading feces everywhere. <laughs> so then we put him outside and he barks until he's hoarse. And our neighbors don't like that. So we got a bark collar that'll, that'll give him a little reminder not to bark. And that helps a little bit. But then it's like negative 20 degrees outside. And can we leave our dog outside when it's negative 20 degrees outside? And so we put him back inside. And it's really just a work in progress for us. But here's the thing. Eustace freaks out and has a panic attack because he does not believe that we're coming home. He doesn't have a framework that goes, you know what? They leave every so often and they're gone for a couple hours and they come back. He is scared to death that he's never going to see his people again. But the crazy thing is, is that's not because he has a lack of loyalty. That's, exact, that's precisely because he is loyal. And so if you're at a place where you, just, you feel like you can't trust the church or leaders in, in, in the religious community have hurt you or, or there's things that you grew up believing that you're just not sure about. Like, that's okay for now. 
Like my, my hope for you is, is like, I don't want you to stay there just as much as I don't want my dog to lose his mind every time we leave. But if you are there, if you're, if you're having a hard time with that stuff I believe in my mind, just, just don't let go of loyalty to Jesus. Stay connected to the person of Christ and stay connected to his people, even if we drive you crazy. Revelation Church, we are adopted by the Father. That is true about us as Christians. There is nothing we can do to earn his love because he demonstrated it to us while we were still in sin. And we are loyal to the Son. That is something that is true about us as Christians. He is our king and we are his people and our lives are meant to look like his. These things don't operate in contradiction. I don't even think they really operate in tension. They are just realities about who we are as God's people. And we can both rest in them and be spurred on to lay down our lives for one another because of them. Let's do some Q&R. Telling you, I'm never going to figure out how this phone works. It's so hard. Okay, here we go. Is then actionable faith an indicator more than earning, similar to what James says in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19? James 2, 18 says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one, good, even the demons believe and they shudder. Yeah, I think this is really what James is getting at, right? Like he's, he's mocking people for saying that they have faith, but do not express any kind of lifestyle that looks like Jesus, And there's all this like, well, is James and Paul, are they in conflict with one another? No. Both of these men as followers of Jesus are saying, God has done a work for you and it's our responsibility to receive that work and trust in it. And then that's going to change our lives. This is one of these areas where, where, again, James is mocking this idea of faith as just believing this, just being this thing that I believe. Like I have, I have a set of doctrines that I've committed to memory and that's the extent of my Christian life. I don't believe Buddhist doctrines or Hindu doctrines or Muslim doctrines. I believe Christian doctrines and so now I'm a Christian. And James says, no, that's not really how it works. Faith is bigger than that. Faith is actually being someone who walks in loyalty to Christ. Let's see, what else is in here? Get used to the therapy dog. <laughs> I don't want another dog. <laughs> or a cat. I don't want a cat either. A goldfish, yeah. That, that, I'll take, take a therapy goldfish. That'd be fine. Okay, one more. Uh, let's see, how do I get here? Oh my gosh. What does this say? Okay, here we go. The early Christians exemplified ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. Scripture tells us to follow suit. Our allegiance, loyalty, and ultimate identity is to be found in Christ. Yet, is there an extent of lowercase loyalty that we could, should give to human structures as a sign of respect towards cooperation with our fellow man? To what extent should we participate in human structures? How much stock should we put in them? 
And what does it look like to not completely disconnect yourself from society, government, human efforts, while remaining loyal to Christ? That's a good question. Um, so yes, there is a lowercase loyalty that we should have to the government that we're a citizen of, um, to our families, our biological families, to our employers. There's all these ways that we should be loyal people. One of the things um, that I find helpful when I'm trying to figure out what it looks like to be loyal to something that is not explicitly connected to Christ. So like, let's say uh, the, the, the US government or, or the, I don't know if the government is the thing we're loyal to, but the, the nation, right? We're, we are citizens of the United States of America. What does it mean to be loyal citizens? If our loyalty to the United States means something that is not possible for a Christian in another country to express in their country, then I think we're a little out of whack. Like if, if you're a Christian in Zimbabwe, there would be a call to be loyal to the uh, nation of Zimbabwe. And, and the kind of loyalty a Zimbabwean Christian expresses to their government should be similar to the kind of loyalty we express to our nation. And if there is a sense in which the kind of loyalty we're called to express to the United States cannot be equally expressed by a Christian in another nation to their nation, then I think we have a problem if the kind of patriotism we're calling ourselves to in America would be weird for a Christian visiting from Canada or England or China, then I think we may have it a little bit out of alignment. But I do think we are called to be good citizens. And we see, I mean, Paul says that. Paul says we're supposed to respect and honor and pray for so that we would live a quiet life. That's the goal of that. Paul uses the uh, citizenship that he has. We, we just talked about it in Acts 16. He doesn't use it the way we think we, he should, but he eventually says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't treat me like that. And so he doesn't, he doesn't forsake his citizenship. He doesn't build a commune off in the country and, and you know, cut himself off from the world because of his allegiance to Christ. He just makes his allegiance to Christ primary. And whenever allegiance to something else gets in the way of that, allegiance to Christ comes first. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.